Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... Right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. If you're an adult age 21 and older and use nicotine or tobacco, I want to tell you about Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. What are they made of? Cured edible green leaves, food-grade ingredients, and pharmaceutical-grade nicotine. No tobacco leaf or stem. So if you're 21 and older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online and they ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. You know our trusted partner TireRack.com for their fast, free shipping, free road hazard protection, convenient installation options, and their great selection of best tires, like the highly consumer-rated Toyo Open Country AT3. But did you know they sell other automotive products? Wheels, brakes, suspension, just to name a few. Go to TireRack.com slash Colin. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. What's going on, everybody? John Middlecoff of the Three and Out Podcast, brought to you live by the Colin Coward Podcast Network. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review. And in the review section, leave questions. Anything regarding the NFL, anything regarding college football, uh, potential draft prospects. And we will get to them at the end of the podcast. We've been banging out a bunch of questions. We do it every week. Today we got a big show coming up, uh, talking a little bit about the Panther sale. Des Bryant will hit on Flacco and Lamar Jackson, but but let's start with the Carolina Panthers. I'm I'm fascinated by this story. One thing we'll try to do on this on this podcast. It's something that I really like, and I know a lot of people that that follow the NFL really like because you guys work in business, uh, like the business aspect of the NFL. The Carolina Panthers just sold for a little over 2.2 billion dollars. To a guy, Jacob Tepper, uh, he was a minority owner with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I just texted a family member who, who's deep in business, and he said he's one of the great investors of all time. He just paid cash, I repeat, cash, all cash, for the Carolina Panthers. He paid cash. He's not taking out any loans. He paid cash. If you Google Tepper... You'll find that like a month ago, he sold a bunch of his hedge, uh, he's a hedge funds manager, sold a bunch of his stock uh, of Apple for like $850 million. He is worth over $11 billion. And, and I think there are several angles of this. First off, just how fascinating the growth of the NFL is. And I think a lot of it has been the last 20 years. No league has done a better job with the new media and just pounced on the revenue streams. But I, I just look back, I, I live in the Bay Area, Eddie DeBartolo's a legend around here, and in 1977, he purchased the San Francisco 49ers, who at the time was a struggling franchise. Clearly, a lot has changed in the last, what, 40 years. But he paid $17 million. I googled the inflation ca- uh, calculator. That is $70 million in today's uh, day and age. So he basically paid the equivalent in 2018 of $70 million. Went 12 years later to Jerry Jones, who paid $140 million. Inflation, $280 million today. A couple years ago, the Polygulas, who are just absolutely loaded, you know, multi, multi-billionaires over, I think paid $1.4 billion for the Buffalo Bills, 
one of the smallest markets in the league. Now, obviously, the Carolina Panthers, Charlotte's an you know an up and coming market in America, but I think it shows you what the NFL has really turned into. It's basically like I, I've never played Augusta National, and I, I'm a golfer. I've known a couple people that have, and obviously talked to people that have been through the grounds before. And when you hear stories about how elite of a country club it is, like it doesn't matter how much money you have. You're either in or you're out. Like they decide. And I think the NFL has become that. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you get into the club. And it was the moment that it came to our knowledge, I think it was week 17, that Jerry Richardson was going to sell the Carolina Panthers, obviously after the, the scandal, and it turned out he's a total pig, that we've everyone was like oh can p diddy can p diddy and steph curry buy it and my first reaction was what the hell are you talking no chance on god's green earth you know can can this celebrity buy it that's not how the nfl works you have to be on the in and he was on the in he was a minority owner just like jimmy haslam was several years ago he was already vetted and here's the other thing like in my backyard i got jed york and mark davis mark davis is is the most cash poor of all the NFL owners. I would say before Levi Stadium, Jed York and his family. Now, Eddie DeBartolo wasn't, but when Eddie DeBartolo had to get rid of the team to the Yorks, probably wasn't far behind. And you see Mike Brown of Cincinnati. While Dean Spanos has more money than them, you wouldn't know by the way he acts. These people, the now they're billionaires because of their team, but they could, without that team, could never afford to buy into the NFL. The influx of these new owners, and I've seen it in different areas uh, in California that, like where my parents live, they bought in in the 70s or 80s, and then in the last 30 plus years, the homes have gone up 15 fold. That the guy coming in, paying a couple million dollars for a home, he's living in the same neighborhood of someone that bought a home for a hundred grand. And the way you think about business, the way you operate, you're never going to be on the same plane as those people. You are not going to think alike. So as the Poligulas come in, as the Teppers come in, as these new owners, now Tepper and even Jimmy Haslam had already been in the league, but they didn't have saying power in these owners' meetings. Now they're at the head of the table. They're going to think differently sometimes than these old school owners. Why? Because they have way more money. He just paid $2.2 billion plus cash. Cash! For, for this team. I, I, I tweeted it out earlier today. Anyone that's ever tried to buy Bay Area real estate, and there are probably other areas clearly in America that are like this, but of the last several years, the amount of money here, the majority of people like me and you can't even begin to relate. They have monopoly money. You're trying to buy a home and you're spending you know, 50 to 100 grand more than the home's price and you're like, God, this is going to be stretching me thin. And a guy comes $50,000 over your bid and pays cash. And you just you just kind of shake your head. That's what happened here. And if you read, he was not even the highest bidder. He was not the highest bidder. But you know what he was? He was in the inner circle. And you know what else he did? He didn't have to finance it. He paid cash. Like, the, the changing of the guard in the NFL... I, I think the league, it's going to be fast. I don't know how this is going to play out, but the more the Poligulas come in, the more the Teppers come in, I would imagine maybe a couple NFL owners think about selling in the next five, ten years when you can get this type of money, cash, handed into your, you know, deposited into your bank account. Now, I, I know there's a huge ego and there's fame that comes with being an owner in the NFL, but there has to be some of these families that when the Davis family bought in back in the 60s, who knows when the Brown family bought in, you know, a long, long time ago. Uh, it, it defines Jed York, but there could come a time when he could sell a franchise for $4 billion. You just never know. And a guy pay cash. Like, what would the 49ers fetch on the open market right now? Just say that out loud. What would they fetch? Well, you know, what would the what could Woody Johnson get for the New York Jets? Now, it would be hard. You, you it'd be a stretch to see some of these owners sell in the in the foreseeable future, you know, the next several years. But there has to come a time where most businessmen, everyone has a price. 
And you, you just, with the amount of money these people are paying, what the country club is becoming, the NFL has always been, obviously, the last you know, 20, 30 years, a rich guy's league. But it's turning into, like, Dean Spanos and the Yorks and the Davises and the Browns, like, they have nothing in common with this guy. This guy has more cash in his couch than they do combined in their bank accounts. So, and the more and more that these guys come into the league, I'm not saying it's going to fracture the NFL because Roger, I know he takes a lot of shit. He does clearly a pretty good job. The league is held by the Jerry Joneses and the Bob Crafts that have a good balance of having business money and team money. But I'm telling you, because just put yourself in those shoes. If you're coming into any club and you're paying cash and you know you are worth 10 times more than the guy sitting across from you at the table and you have the same amount of say in that room, it's hard to view yourself as equals. I don't care if you've only been in the club for a year and that guy's been in there for 40 years. Because I, I, I know I don't. I, I've been in these situations on a clearly never even close to the scale, but it's all relative. If I know I'm worth $15 billion and I know that guy is worth nothing, and the way the revenue sharing is set up, you start not resenting them, but just like not respecting them. And it'll be interesting the more the Poligulas, the Teppers come in, if the NFL changes from the top. Because they've had a basically a family-run business for a for the majority of my life, it's been the same families have owned the teams, but now every couple years it feels like these teams are turning over, and it's not back in the day like when Eddie DeBartolo was buying it for seventeen million, which don't get me wrong was a ton of money back in nineteen seventy-seven, or even Jerry Jones for one hundred forty million, and I've heard the Jerry Jones story. It's not like he paid that all cash; I mean, he was financing it. He said he didn't even have that much money to his name at the time. I think he put forward, you know, 10 to $20 million. As these guys come in, remember the famous story about George Steinbrenner buying the Yankees. Like, if you're going to buy, you know, a Major League Baseball team now, you're paying a premium. No different than the NFL. And that, that force has changed. Sometimes it's for the better. Like, Mark Cuban was a positive for the NBA. But I, the more and more these guys come in, I, I'm just telling you, keep an eye on it. Because I think guys like this coming into the NFL will, will force change. Good or bad, I don't know, but the guard is clearly changing. Let's get to another, uh, I guess it's kind of a hot topic. I saw within the last five or six days, a lot of people tweet about this. Uh, it kind of flew across my timeline you know, here and there, and it's Joe Flacco and Lamar Jackson. Obviously, I would say one of the curveballs in the first round a couple weeks ago was Lamar Jackson going to the Baltimore Ravens. Then one of the big stories, as I just said, has been that Lamar Jackson has been reaching out to Joe Flacco via text and phone calls and not receiving any communication back. He ghosted him. I guess it's hard to ghost someone when you've never actually talked, but Joe Flacco has not talked to Lamar Jackson. And I think the initial reaction, especially on social media, is Flacco's being an asshole. Flacco's being a bad guy. A bad teammate. I've always said this. I've been in situations where I knew I wasn't going to stay at a job much longer. I had zero respect for the guy I was working for. And I kept telling myself, you know, be a pro. Handle yourself professionally. It's easier to say that out loud than actually do it in reality. Because in reality, when you have to see the person that you don't like or you're in a situation that you just want out of, it's hard to handle yourself and maintain a level of... uh, professionalism like it's it's easy to say act the right way and then it's another thing to do it now that's uh, it's a little different when you're there with them if you're being an asshole to them but let me defend Joe Flacco here Joe Flacco is going to be fighting for his job this year not not just on the field but his kind of his career in Baltimore he won them a Super Bowl and don't get it twisted it was him playing out of his ass for like a four-game stretch in the playoffs. Just absolutely balling, leading that team to a championship. Now, that was a long time ago, as we sit here today in 2018. But that did happen. You've established this legacy of the guy to win a championship in Baltimore. Uh, You've had a rough couple years. You know that. He's not an idiot. Then they draft a quarterback in the first round. Again, Joe Flacco has seen the landscape of the NFL the last several years. Those guys play. So, it's a very competitive league. This isn't church. 
<laughs> you know? So this guy reaching out to him, this guy is coming for his job. He has not met him either. He, they, they haven't met in person. So is it really on Joe Flacco to reach out to him and just say, hey, congrats? In a perfect world, Judy, probably yeah. But is it really a reflection on him? If I told you right now, wherever you worked, in any company, that the guy they just hired, some hot shot from Stanford or the University of Texas, this really dynamic, potential dominant sales guy that had a couple internships when he was at University of Texas, you know, Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and just crushed it. And is coming, like, he's coming for your spot. Now, he doesn't have it yet, but the writing's on the wall. You're making, let's just say, let's just use normal people money. Let's say you're really rich. You're making 500K. Like, that's the relative of Joe Flacco making like 20 million. Well, this guy's, they just hired only making 85K. But he's this hotshot young guy and everyone's kind of smitten with him. Would you just be his best friend before you even met him? Are we all supposed to be good teammates in life? Sure. But again, they have no personal interaction. Flacco is, this is a competitive business. There's a, there's a sign basically on every wall in the NFL that says you're either getting better or you're getting worse. There is no staying the same. And that's so true in the NFL. Joe Flacco now has gotten worse the last couple years, but is fighting for his professional livelihood. Here's the other thing with this. this was this a calculated move by Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson's camp? Like, who is leaking this? Because I'll tell you who is not leaking this. Joe Flacco. <laughs> Joe, it doesn't behoove Joe Flacco to tell media members or whoever, however it got out, that, yeah, I'm just not calling Lamar Jackson back. No one leaks on themselves, they're a quote-unquote asshole. So this is either coming from Lamar Jackson or it's coming from the Baltimore Ravens. And either one of those for Joe Flacco is not ideal. If it's coming from Lamar Jackson, it goes, God, I mean, am I going to have to, this is who I have to deal with? And if it's coming from the Baltimore Ravens, they're already trying to paint him in a bad light. He's got to kind of strap up and go to the proverbial football war. You know, it's it's his job or he's going to be on the bench by the end of September. So I don't necessarily blame Joe Flacco for not texting Lamar Jackson back. Because here's another thing. You you often see this in the first round. Like when uh, Saquon Barkley's drafted or, you know, Derwin James is drafted or whoever. And they say, when they first get to rookie minicamp, they go, you know what's pretty cool? On draft night, Derwin James, I don't know if he said this, but it's there. it feels like this happens every year. Eli Manning texted me. Derwin James, Philip Rivers sent me a text that night. And I said, thanks, Mr. Rivers. You know, thanks, Mr. Manning. And, you know, the quotes always goes. They respond, just call me Eli. Call me Philip. Well, it's easy to send that text when it ain't your position. It's another thing to send that text when it's a rookie quarterback. You know, and you're over 30. And you know that they'll get rid of you. So you know what? I defend Joe Flacco. Now, I wouldn't defend Joe Flacco if it comes out that by the end of OTAs, he refuses to make eye contact if he's being really petty. But I have no problem with, until you meet the guy, you don't owe him a text back. You don't owe him anything. If anything, this is more a reflection on Lamar Jackson, if his camp leaked this. And it's 100% a reflection on the Baltimore Ravens if they're already leaking this. Flacco's in trouble if this is coming from the Baltimore Ravens. 100% red flag in major trouble. Now, you could argue his play has put him in trouble. Fair. I would agree. But the the tide is ever-changing. Now his replacement is in-house. Joe Flacco better play his best football, or he's going to be holding the clipboard, you know, I would say by October. Let's get to Des Bryant, who's probably... I think it's safe to say the most famous guy on uh, on the open market. In the NFL, we, we use the term the street, a street free agent, especially at this time of year. Uh, I, I would say it's a little perplexing that he hasn't been signed yet, but so, some believe that it's not even that crazy. I've always been in the camp that I've liked Des. I, I thought he was, I mean, a couple years ago, was an absolute baller. He, he was an elite player. But I, I've never... I've never disagreed with the camp that said he was a flawed player. I have no issue with you being a 
character might be the wrong word, just, just a headache, if you're good enough. As Doc Rivers has famously said over the years, and I, I love that, I, I think about it all the time, because I, I think it translates to, to every major business. You have to be better than your problems. And when Dez was young, like a lot of young rookies and young players that come into the NFL that are really talented, they are better than their problems. And then you get to a line, and once you cross it, it's usually as you get older or you have an injury, you are no longer better than your problems. And you become expendable in the NFL, and guys get rid of you. The, the most, I would say, the most recent one that I had a front row seat on the last five or six years was Alden Smith, who at one point in time looked like he was going to become a Hall of Fame pass rusher. He's different than Dez, obviously, at substance abuse and just different issues. But he was so freaking talented that forever the 49ers and then even the Raiders made excuse after excuse after excuse. And then it got to the point where he's just not better than his problems. For Dez, uh, I, I was watching Colin Coward this morning, and he he brought up the Amazon film. Uh, uh, I can't even think of the name, but Amazon has a program, all or nothing, on the Dallas Cowboys. I, I watched the Michigan one. Michigan one was excellent. I tried to watch the Dallas one. I, I just didn't find it that fascinating. I only watched one episode. But in that first episode, there was an interaction between Derek Dooley and Des Bryant when Derek Dooley is simply trying to tell the group of receivers that we're playing the Denver Broncos, who had the best defensive backfield in the NFL for the last several years, and was just talking about how serious to take them, and Des snapped on it. It was not that big a deal. The NFL is a very confrontational business. Everyone that works in it kind of thrives off it. Uh, there's a lot of yelling at each other. There's a lot of aggressive alpha male talks. It's not unnormal, the conversation that they had. The thing that was telling, though, about the conversation was the coach was simply trying to say, hey, guys, we got to lock in this week. This group is good. And Des kind of snapped. Like, I, I'm all for snapping at coaches when you disagree, you know, with different scheme stuff or even, you know... I, about countless things in the NFL. But that one was, Des, what, what, how are you going to get open on these guys? These guys can run. Akeem Tlaib is one of the best press corners in the league. Their third corner, Bradley Roby, might be the best third corner in the league. You know, Chris Harris Jr. is the best slot. That's all he was saying. And, and Des just didn't handle it very well. I would imagine teams have peaked at this, and clearly they had red flagged him a long time ago. And again, the moment you start to diminish as a player and you're a quote-unquote red flag guy, the amount of teams that will even mess with you diminishes by half. Most teams in the NFL don't truly want to mess with a red flag guy, but in the NFL, when you're young and I can draft you, they look past it. But once you get to the point where you're not as good of a player, I'll give you an example, J.J. Watt. He's had, it feels like, 17 injuries in the last three years. But the team loves him. And, you know, he, is he as good of a player? Is he worth what he's making right now? Probably not. Do I expect J.J. Watt to be a very good player this year? No, I actually don't. Would I keep him if I was a Houston Texans? Yeah, <laughs> I, I would. Because ultimately, he's a good locker room guy. He sets a good tone. I like having him around. And again, I, I think that translates to, you all work in different businesses, you know. Certain people are at certain jobs, not necessarily because their productivity, just because people like them. And Dez, who I, I would say was pretty well liked, it felt like by Tony Romo, and it, even Jason Witten has played the political line, but the coaches, like the coaches and the management are really the reason most players are either going to stay or leave a team, obviously. They're the ones picking the players. When coaches like you, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt. You're going to get jobs. And in the NFL, that has turnover and coaches moving teams at a just rapid speed. I mean, these coaches are nomads. Every couple years, they're on a different team. It's so easy for a lot of guys to find a job. You get cut. Look at Jordy Nelson. Boom, got cut, gets cut. Edgar Bennett, the former wide receiver coach for the Green Bay Packers, is with the Raiders. Boom, he signs there. I mean, it happens every year. I, I, Jordy Nelson, I can use a million examples. Wade Phillips, to Tlaib. You know, it, it happens all the time with star players. You just, there's a, the guy likes you, bring him in. They vouch for you. 
They look at their general manager and their head coach, the assistant coach, and say, I want that guy. Is anyone around the NFL saying that about Des Bryant when the general manager or head coach goes to that assistant coach? Yeah, he's not quite as good anymore. I don't know if anyone's pounding the table for Des. And if you're just a, a solid, you don't need to be, you know, the man of the year. If you're just a likable guy and you're just solid, which Des is still solid, he's no longer a Pro Bowl level player, but he's still productive. He can still play in the NFL. I don't think anyone around the league is pounding the table for him. And I'm telling you, I just, I've worked in the league for a couple years. It's pretty easy to pound the table for a player if he's just semi-decent, let alone Des Bryant's talent. I think it's pretty telling, and I think the Amazon was a a little insight into the window of what Des is like. And, and I know people, I tweeted out the video like a month ago, and everyone's like, oh, you could do this with every player. I don't know if you could. Not in something just as simple as the interaction that Dooley was having with him, saying to get ready for the Denver Broncos, with the Cowboys ended up getting their ass kicked. Now, I checked the box where Dez actually had a decent game. I think he had like six catches and a touchdown. But the point remains, you know, that, that's, that's just basic coaching. That's coaching one-on-one in the NFL. And I think this is a reflection that Dez is going to stay unemployed for a long time. Okay, let's get to uh, what I think is my favorite part of the podcast. We're, we're going to call it the Middlecoff Mailbag. And in the Middlecoff Mailbag, if you go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and then review section, leave a question mark. And I'll answer them in the podcast. Let's start with TNFX4. Left a question on Marcus Mariota. Who's to blame for Mariota's ba- bad season in 2017? And will he bounce back this year? I put two players in this category. Derek Carr and Mariota. Both of them, ironically, were injured on the same day two years ago. I think it was week 16. And both of them... Potentially, now Mariota was injured in a game that probably would have cost the Titans the playoffs. Carr was obviously going to the playoffs. To me, when you're a young quarterback and you have a major injury and you lose out on your entire offseason, I think it throws everything off. And young quarterbacks, probably more than veterans because they don't, while everyone relies on confidence, I feel confidence when you're a younger player is so much more important because you haven't been there. You can't necessarily rely on experience. So both those people, when I both those people, the quarterbacks, Carr and Mariota, play differently, obviously. But when I watch Mariota and I watch Carr, the number one thing that stood out to me this season was they just didn't look comfortable. When two years ago they were very comfortable. And to me, it's just reps. You don't get those reps all offseason. And then you start the you start the season, and there is no practice once the season starts is all revolved around the game plan, getting ready for Sunday. It's not as much while there are individual fundamental periods. You you can lose sight of the fundamentals. It's why in the offseason, you set the tone, you set the base of your house, and then throughout the season, you build it. It's why Tom Brady, all offseason, even though he's not at the OTAs or Aaron Rodgers, they work on the basic stuff, and then once the season comes, they just hone in on their opponents. And when you're a young quarterback and you have a major injury, you know, working in on those repetitive fundamentals that, especially guys that are only two and three years removed from college when they ran different type offenses that they're running in the pros, is really important. Now, to me, the thing, the little scary part about Mariota, and I've said this from the jump, Mariota does not have a great arm. It's solid. It's not near the top end of the young guys, the Wences. The, the cars, it's not in that. It's closer to golf. So he has to be very accurate. And he wasn't very accurate last year. Now, I, I do think his success is going to be a little predicated on the run game. The run game took a big step la- back last year with DeMarco Murray getting hurt. I would expect him to bounce back. He is a much better player than he showed uh, last year. I've always questioned, though, is he going to be some superstar We'll see. He's got a new coach, obviously not an offensive-minded head coach, but a tough guy who's going to try to win it on defense and maybe get back to his roots of just playing a little more ball control and not putting as much on Mariota's shoulder. So yes, I would envision him bouncing back, but I, I would temper my enthusiasm a little bit. I mean, I, is he just going to become you know, a top-five quarterback? I, I, I've never been so sure about that. Uh, let's get to Rob. Uh, question, 
as a Seattle Seahawks fan, what is a realistic outlook on this season? And the future with the division getting better with the roster that has gotten worse? Great question. I would say the NFC West has seen a massive changing of the guard. I think it was for five straight years, Seattle Seahawks had won the division. The one reason I will not write, out, write off the Seattle Seahawks despite all their roster turnover, really there are two, and it's Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson. When you have an elite coach and when you have an elite quarterback, you always have a chance in the NFL. I don't give a shit who your teammates are. So I would say realistic outlook would to be, a, be around 500, but I don't think it's crazy if all of a sudden you say Seattle's in the playoff mix next year. They have, a, they have a Hall of Fame quarterback, and they have a coach whose resume speaks for itself. So I don't think you can write them off. And let's not forget, last year they were right in the mix till really the Rams kicked their ass in Seattle. And then didn't they bounce back the following week when they beat Dallas? So th- it's not like they were, and I, th- I thought John Schneider had one of the best quotes of the offseason when he said, we were a 9-7 and team and it felt like we won two games. And part of that is when you have Seattle had turned into like New England Patriot, Green Bay Packers expectations. And obviously those have kind of come back to earth a little bit heading into this season. But I don't think, and listen, I live in the Bay Area. A lot of people just feel, and this I think gets into your bigger picture, uh, you know, divisional question. Like the 49ers, they won five games when they had zero pressure on them. I'm, I'm a big Jimmy Garoppolo fan, but let's see... He's the starting quarterback for the first time in an offseason. Ton of pressure. Their roster is not that great. To me, the Rams are clearly on the on the top shelf level, just on paper, and they did it last year, and they proved they could they could definitely beat Seattle, and, and they beat the 49ers earlier in the season. We didn't get to see Week 17 because McVay benched everyone. But I, I still think this is a three-horse race coming into this season. The Rams are the lead dog. But I don't know if the the difference between... Russell Wilson's a better player than Jimmy Garoppolo. Pete Carroll's accomplished a lot more than Kyle Shanahan. So I can't just automatically, while I would say I would pick the Niners to finish second, I, I can't just write that in concrete. I, I would pump our brakes a little bit on that. And big picture, listen, anyone that's listening to this show knows I'm a Josh Rosen guy. If Steve Wilkes... Uh, I, I don't. I really, to, to be honest, don't know much about him. Only time will tell. So your head coach has to be good for your team to be good. Usually, if he turns out to be a solid head coach and Rosen can stay healthy, it's not like Arizona's going anywhere. Is there a chance this is one of the better divisions in like three years? Russell Wilson, Jimmy Garoppolo, Jared Goff, and Josh Rosen. That's a pretty good quarterback division. I mean, the oldest guy is is Russell Wilson at what, like 29, 28 years old? I don't think he's 30 yet. So you'd have to be pretty bullish on where this division's headed. My only, I guess, red flag on Seattle, big, big picture, is how much longer is Pete going to coach? He has more money than God now. He's accomplished everything he's set out to accomplish. Is he in it for the long haul? If they do take a step back this year and win six or seven games, does he want to rebuild? And then to me, the question mark, and this would be the great intrigue, would... uh, would John Schneider be able to pry Pete, Chris Peterson away from the University of Washington? I, I would, I'd say, if you would ask me years ago, would Chris Peterson ever go to the NFL? I'd say no, he has zero aspirations. But I do think it'd be a pretty unique fit uh, culturally, uh, geographically. He's right there, and Russell Wilson. Uh, that that would be my if Pete ever did retire because I don't see how I was not going to fire him no matter how bad this year is. Would John Schneider make an all-out run? Uh, for Chris Peterson. And I do think if you are Chris Peterson, it, you'd at least have to listen. Next question. Uh, what, okay, here, uh, my question is this. What could the Eagles really get for Foles? And would they ever trade him? Nate from Maryland. Good question. I think realistically, they could get a third. Uh, would they ever trade him? Yes. I mean, Howie Roseman, I, I've worked for him. He's like uh, Billy Bean or Danny Ainge. He'd trade his kid for the right value. I don't think they'd trade him right now, though, unless you offered, uh, you know, just a player, you know, Khalil Mack or just someone you couldn't turn down. And obviously that trade would never happen. But you kind of need him right now. Your starting quarterback has a torn ACL. And while all the reports say he's ahead of schedule, he still has a torn AC. You know, he's coming back from a major injury. This guy has also proven that he can win a Super Bowl. So I, 
I, I think you're hesitant because you go, we have the best backup in the NFL. Maybe the only backup since now Jimmy Garoppolo's out of town, and depending on how good some of these rookies are, that you could make a playoff run with. Like, that's a pretty powerful asset to have. And it gives you a contingency plan that even when Wentz comes back, and he's coming back, he's proven he's going to struggle to stay on the field. He got injured in college a couple years ago at a much smaller level than the NFL. Two years in at the NFL, and again, I love Carson Wentz. If I had a number one overall fantasy draft of real football, he'd be my number one overall pick for the next 10 years. But it's a little risky. He's got two major injuries in the last like five years. He's got to stay healthy. And whenever you have a quarterback that you say, well, he's got to stay healthy, you have to have a good backup plan. So to me, I don't think a team would offer more than a third. And I don't know if that's enough, given the the Eagles situation, to justify a trade. So I I really see Foles on this team for the foreseeable future. That being this year. I mean, it's a year-to-year league. So foreseeable future, the next 12 months, is a long time in the NFL. Next question. Uh... It's a long one. Okay, let me get this out. From from uh, from Ed. Do you subscribe to the philosophy that NFL teams should scout 32 college programs like, this, like they scout the other NFL teams? This allows you to develop a better understanding, this is a good question, of who may be available in the following year's draft and build your draft board, even though it's a rough product for the next year. May also allow you to find some hidden gems and great programs and I see where you're saying here. I would say here's the problem. You already scout the big five programs, the power five programs, you know, the Pac-12, the Big 12, the Big 10, the SEC, and the ACC pretty heavily. Uh, You know, you pay a decent amount of money. You have guys all over the league. And scouting services that most teams subscribe to give you a list of guys. And because your scouts are going, like I remember my last year in the NFL, going into programs like – like USC and Oregon. It was clear when you went out to practice that like, even though Deion Jordan was on the team, that they had this freshman DeForest Buckner. He just looked differently than everyone else. When I went out to USC practice, though they had Robert Woods, you just looked and you saw Marquise Lee. And I would, I've never done this, the SEC, but I, I've always heard stories. The SEC is clearly just like that. It's programs like LSU, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, etc., so you just naturally going into these programs make little notes. Like it's pretty clear who your first rounder is. And then at the programs like the Baker Mayfields and stuff that are mid-round guys that rise, you've watched them play. So I, I think most of these teams scout most of these big programs that are producing all the top guys pretty heavily anyway. Uh, in 2018 with the internet, I, I don't think there's any such thing as a hidden gem anymore. There might be a hidden, a quote-unquote hidden gem start of January, like start of the All-Star Circuit. But once you go to the East-West Shrine game or the Senior Bowl, a hidden gem, and when you say hidden gem to me now is a guy that most teams have in the later rounds, goes to one of these All-Star games, kind of shoots up the board, they no longer exist. With communication and just with the world being flat, it, it's hard to fly under the radar with the power of football, with the power of the NFL, and just with the power of the internet. So I I think most teams, for the most part, everything that I've known and been in it and seen the way other teams do it, do more than their due diligence on every main program. Now, they may just mis-evaluate a guy, uh, but I I think they're pretty locked into every team. It's easier in the NFL because there's just a set number of teams. In college, every year is different. Like one year, USC may have four first-rounders. The following year, they may not have won. Uh, Alabama and Ohio State right now are cash cows, but like Michigan, one year may have one first rounder. The next, like in the next couple years, they'll probably have four. Like it's a pretty fluid. The NC State just had what, you know, uh, three defensive linemen go in the top like 120 picks. Well, next year they're going to have none. <laughs> you know, so it just it's a fluid process. In the NFL, every year the New York Giants are going to have some guys. You know, every year the Rams and the Niners, every year, every team has a bunch of pros. In college football, it's not like that. So you'd spend a bunch of time, like, if you're doing the West Coast on Oregon State, well, one year they might not have a draftable player. So you're better off spending more of your time, you know, at a smaller school, 
like Cal Poly, for example. I know that's a little biased. I went there. But may on a given year have two guys that are going to get drafted in the fourth round. You're better off spending multiple days there than multiple days at Oregon State. So I, I think it's all a balance, and it, it's a very fluid process because every year changes year to year. Quick question uh, from Reggie. What kind of contract can you see Jared Goff getting, being that he's so connected to Carson Wentz? Same agent, comparable year twos, and going 1-2 in the draft. It's a pretty good question. Wentz should be paid more, but how much more? I think we need to pump our brakes a little bit on Jared Goff, Dak Prescott, and Carson Wentz getting paid. Obviously, Carson Wentz, before he got injured, looked like he was going to just get an astronomical amount of money. But then he tore his ACL. Let's see how he plays this year. When you draft a guy in the first round, now I'd put Dak in a different category because his contract's shorter. But both these guys have fifth-year options. So they're on five-year contracts. Obviously, both their fifth-year options are going to get picked up. Their first two years, especially Jared Goff, took a massive step. So did Carson Wentz. But you look at both of them. You're two years away from having to pay them. You're not going to pay them this offseason. You're going to pay them in two years. So let's just see how they play out. We always love to pay... Reading the article, or not an article, but seeing a headline the other day about, is Dak Prescott the next $100 million quarterback? He's played two seasons. Let's see him play his third season. And you know what? If his third season is just okay, why wouldn't the Cowboys just roll it back? Because they're going to have to pay him a lot anyway, so they could always then franchise him in two years. I think we get so ahead of ourselves on what you're going to have to pay a guy. The only time I worry about what you're going to have to pay a guy is when you actually have to pay the guy. Like right now with Khalil Mack and Aaron Donald. Like, that, that's an important question. But two years ago, that, that really wasn't. Now, I understand to build your team, you always have to think big picture. But just from a fan's perspective, or just from where we're sitting, I, I don't think that's the most important information because so much can change. Injuries, you just never know. How many guys do you think, like, and again, I, I'm not trying to, this is kind of a bad example because he had a bunch of off-the-field issues. But two years into Alden Smith's career, we thought he was going to be the highest-paid defensive lineman ever. Now, obviously, Jared Goff and Carson Wentz, you would never think are going to have issues like that, but you just never know. You just never know with any individual player. Off-the-field stuff, injuries, they're just, this is their play. Guys may plateau. So I, I just think we need to pump the brakes a little bit on what we're going to pay these guys until we see them rattle off like part of the reason Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers and you know the Philip Rivers and the Ben Roethlisberger's make so much they, they've played so long like let's do it for four or five years before really we anoint anyone else now if you get into the situation like you could go middle cop well you just promoted the Jimmy Garoppolo signing he's only started seven games yeah that was a unique situation they had to make a decision <laughs> you know with these two guys you don't and that's that's really the best thing for these organizations is they don't really need to make a decision. They got a couple years to wait. So let's just let's just wait and see how it goes. Can Jared Goff play back-to-back seasons at that level? Can Carson Wentz maintain his level off this uh off this injury? You know, can Carson Wentz stay healthy? I I don't know. Time will tell. Okay, good question here from uh, Kobe D. If you were building a team beside quarterback, what positions would you rank as the most valuable and would you build and would you rank build the team around? To me, non-quarterback, who's just in a level by itself, the, the most important positions haven't really changed over the you know last 20 years. Walsh always thought, Bill Walsh, you ever heard of him, coach 49ers, thought obviously the quarterback, most important position, and then the two most important positions are the guy protecting the quarterback, the t- left tackle, you could throw the right tackle in there now too, and then the guy across from them, rushing the quarterback. And in his example, was always Lawrence Taylor. You know, now it's the Khalil Max, it's the Vaughn Millers. I do think the importance of having good interior offensive linemen is more important because there are a lot better interior defensive linemen now. So I think you can expand when you just say offensive line and defensive line instead of just pass rusher and tackle. I do think that's fair. You know, to say like having a Coleccio assembly is a good thing. Having, you know, drafting Quentin Nelson, while I don't know if I'd do it in the top 10, having him on your team is really important. Just like having Aaron Donald or, you know, a couple years ago, J.J. Watt used to rush from the inside is equally as important as having Khalil Mack and Von Miller consistently running from the edge. So I I do think I've changed there a little uh, just in terms of the offensive and defensive line encompasses all the positions. 
as Howard Mudd told me, people always love to say, and he thought it was pretty lazy, you got to have left tackle feet. He's like, what the hell is left tackle feet? Does does that mean a right tackle can be slow? I I look at the NFL, and he was coming from the Indianapolis Colts in the heyday with Peyton Manning. He goes, we had Robert Mathis and Dwight Franey. Like, good luck having your right tackle be a slug. We'll kick his ass. Nowadays, you play the Denver Broncos, you know, this fall, you could, if Vaughn Miller's not lined up over you, Bradley Chubb will be. Good luck blocking that guy if your right tackle sucks. Guess where Khalil Mack lines up the majority of the time over the right tackle? So to me, both tackle spots are extremely important, probably more than ever. So it's just the lines. And I think that's always kind of been cliche. You build up front. But I don't know if it's ever been more important just because of how much money you're paying the quarterback. And you look at Chris Ballard. I thought he had a really good draft. Even though, again, I don't love taking Quentin Nelson. But I don't dispute that he's an excellent player. So you take Quentin Nelson, you take another guard in the second round, like you're paying Andrew Luck all this money. If he is able to come back, you have to protect him. Protecting your quarterback is extremely important. And it's never been more important in a day and age when you're paying the guy 25 to $30 million. John, uh, this is from Mike in Valencia, California guy. Uh, do you feel that Oakland's draft now proves that Gruden is calling the shots? If so, what do you think that means for Reggie? I think 100% the draft proved that Gruden was calling the shots. It was a coach-driven draft. They were drafting guys like in the second round, P.J. Hall, uh, from a small school that most teams that I talked to had in the fourth or fifth round that Gruden and his defensive line and Paul Gunther loved, which is fine uh, as long as like Belichick's your head coach. I don't know if John Gruden's proven that he's a good enough personnel guy to run a draft. What do I think it means for Reggie? I just think that his power has been greatly stripped. Uh, Mark Davis loves him. He's not going to fire him. Uh, but And Reggie's not going to quit. I mean, he, he don't bypass. He's making seven figures. You don't just leave that money on the table. I, I think he's just in a tough position that any human would probably struggle with. He lost a lot of power. He helped build the team and resurrect them. Uh, the, the one His one downfall, and, and I'd say this... The one red flag for Reggie is just his first head coach when he had the chance when Mark Davis gave him full autonomy to hire a coach, he swung and missed in Dennis Allen. Then the second round, Mark didn't trust him to hire a coach, and he hired Jack Del Rio. And then it turned out Mark was kind of right because Jack was solid for a couple years, and Reggie didn't want Jack. He wanted Tony Sperano, which would have been way worse. But then Jack was a royal disaster, and Mark again had to step in. So... When your owner can't trust you to hire the coach, the coach knows that. And your power is diminished from the jump when that's the case. So Gruden will say all the right things. I, I just think Reggie is, will turn into you know, one of the highest paid scouts in the NFL. And I also say this. I think Gruden could have benefited from letting Reggie help him more than he did in the draft. Because one thing Reggie was good at, and I think he started adapting once he got Khalil and... and uh, and Derek, and even Amari, you, you could take some flyers on character guys, but you can't take an unlimited amount of flyers on character guys. Like, you take make one move for Martavius Bryant. Okay, stop there. Take Daryl Worley that was just arrested for a DUI at 6 in the morning and was tased in the Philadelphia Eagles cut, and Arden Key, you know, and basically it felt like a 48-hour stretch. That's a lot. <laughs> so I, I think Gruden could really benefit from having some help and having someone that he respects to kind of help balance his opinions out. And right right now he doesn't have it. Gruden's just uh, basically running a dictatorship in in Oakland. And really Mark Davis is saying that that's why I'm paying him $100 million. Make every damn decision. Okay, thanks again. We're getting into the offseason. We're going to keep pumping these out. Keep firing me the questions. Uh, I'll, I'll keep providing you the content, and we'll keep having some fun. I appreciate everyone listening. Subscribe, rate, and again, leave the questions in the review section of iTunes. And I'll I'll talk to you next week. You've listened to 3 and Out with John Middlecoff on the Colin Coward Podcast Network. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com.
Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.